Welcome back, everyone. This is lecture number 15. And today we are going to talk about mechanisms of pathogenesis. And this quote is very appropriate. We have met the enemy and he is us, because that's what it is pretty much when it comes to pathogenesis. Now, pathogenesis is the process or the processes that lead to disease. We could be talking about viral pathogenesis or bacterial or disease, non-infectious disease pathogenesis. But today, of course, we're talking about viral pathogenesis. And the key here is that disease is often a collateral outcome of the parasitic nature of viruses. What does that mean? It's an accident. It's a by byproduct because viruses are parasitic. They take things away from the host and that can sometimes damage them. But as you'll see today, often the immune response causes that damage. And here's a key point. Selective pressures that control evolution of viruses act only on the abilities of viruses to survive. I don't really like that word. This is right out of the textbook. I would say to endure and reproduce. So in other words, evolution, the selective pressures of evolution are on reproduction and transmission, not causing disease. When you think about it, there is no advantage to causing disease in a host. It's a collateral effect. And that's why I often get annoyed when I hear about variants with increased virulence. Very difficult to prove that. And if it's true, then it has to be a consequence of something else that changed and was selected and the virulence is going up, up by collateral, okay? Not because it was selected for. So keep that in mind. Virulence is not selected for. Transmission and reproduction is. Now, when we study pathogenesis, mostly we use animal models. We cannot do experiments with people for the most part, although there are some viruses uh, with which you can do human challenge studies, noroviruses and rhinoviruses. And, you know, the crazies in the UK apparently are going to do a challenge trial with SARS-CoV-2. And they're saying, you know, I shouldn't go on, but I'm going to. You know, we're going to do this in healthy young people. And you know what? Guess what? Healthy young people develop long COVID even after a mild infection. So who's going to take the responsibility of that completely ill-informed idea to do a challenge trial? Anyway, we use animal models, but they're not perfect. And that's why this slide is called My Sly and Monkeys Exaggerate. What does that mean? I think you get it. Nothing, no animal model is perfect. They provide a guideline and you have to look in people, make observations and see if they make sense in terms of what you find out in animals. Do not be governed by the tyranny of the animal model. Nevertheless, I'm a big fan of animal model for fi figuring out fundamental issues. How do you use animal models? So we use a lot of different kinds of animals. Mice are very popular because they're small, they're genetically manipulable, they're different strains. And so here on this slide are different ways we can use a mouse. We can modulate the immune response of the mouse. You know, we can deplete immune cells. We, we saw an example of that last time. We can introduce clonal T-cell receptors, overproduce immune mediators. We can even put human tissues into mouse, mice. And, um, you know, we can give mice an immune, a human immune system. And that allows you to look at HIV reproduction. 
We can also modulate uh, susceptibility or permissivity. So you can produce viral genes that might affect that, even complete genomes, or you could put receptors in to make the mice susceptible. Now here I'm using susceptibility in the original way I defined it for you, having receptors. And then you have your, your mouse. And what kind of viruses do you use? Sometimes human viruses will actually reproduce in mice, as we'll see today. Sometimes they, they will reproduce in an unmodified mouse, if you're lucky. If you're not, you have to modify the mouse. Sometimes we work on animal viruses that model human infections. So we don't have, the, the human virus doesn't work in a mouse. We use animal viruses and many other animal models can be used. Ferrets, guinea pigs, hamsters, rabbits, and, and of course, non-human primates. You know, just because they're primates doesn't mean that they're better than other. You know, for example, you could put SARS-CoV-2 into a non-human primate. They don't die. It's not a lethal disease. Obviously, it's different. And we can't work on chimpanzees anymore. We used to do that, but no more. They're now protected, which is a good thing, because I don't think they tell you anything more than any other animal model. Uh, I know about animal models because we made the first transgenic animal model for a virus disease. Here at Columbia University in the 90s, uh, working with two of my students, we identified the cell receptor for poliovirus, and then we made a transgenic mouse producing the human receptor, and those mice can be infected with poliovirus and they get paralyzed. As you can see, this animal has a paralyzed hind leg. This was the first animal, transgenic animal uh, model for a virus disease. That was the first one. A lot of others have been made. And of course, uh, ACE2 transgenics can be used to study SARS-CoV-2. By the way, ACE2 transgenics were made after SARS-1 in 2003 because the receptor for SARS-1 is ACE2. And those mice have been around for many years, and they were pulled out. I, I know at least one coronavirologist who was about to sacrifice his ACE2 transgenic mouse line, and then along came SARS-CoV-2. So, so we kept breeding them. Here are some animal models of COVID, just so you know. Uh, mice are not susceptible to infection with SARS-CoV-2. The virus does not bind to mouse ACE2, but it's not very different. You can make two amino changes in the spike of the virus, and that will allow the virus to bind mouse ACE2, and it will infect them and cause an upper and lower tract infection. They will lose weight, but they survive. It is not a lethal disease. They do not develop the immunopathology that's a feature of severe COVID-19. People have also used ACE2 transgenics. These are even worse, in my opinion, because they have ACE2 all over the place, including places, tissues where it shouldn't be, and the mice get all kinds of weird diseases. You can use non-human primates, you can use ferrets, and you can use hamsters. And the last three, unmodified. You don't have to use a different virus. You don't have to use a transgenic. In fact, we don't have transgenic non-human primates, ferrets, or hamsters. Now, here on the right is just how someone tried to make a lethal model. They took this SARS-CoV-2 MA, and this has two amino acid changes in the spike, so it can bind to mouse ACE2, and they passed this virus 10 times in mice, and they got MA10, which causes more severe disease, and it's age-dependent. The older the mouse, the more weight loss, lower tract dysfunction you get, but the mice still don't die. It's not a lethal disease. Okay, just to give you an overview of that since we're talking about pathogenesis. 
Now, one of the important questions for people who study pathogenesis, and I've always been interested in pathogenesis. That's why we made this animal model for poliovirus. And one of the questions is tissue tropism. Tissue tropism means the, the spectrum of, dis, of tissues that are infected by a virus. So, for example, viruses that infect the intestinal tract, we call them enterotropic. Neurotropic, you can guess what that means. Hepatotropic, liver, like hepatitis B virus and hepatitis C virus are hepatotropic. And there are all kinds of other names as well. It varies according to virus. Some viruses have a very limited tropism, like hepatitis C, hepatotropic, liver only. Other viruses can infect many tissues. We call that pantropic. But it's not the norm. Most people, are, most viruses are somewhere in between. And there are determinants of tropism. And we want to know what they are. What makes a particular tissue resistant to infection or susceptible? That could help us understand pathogenesis. Some of the determinants, susceptibility, having a receptor or not. Obviously, if, if there's no receptor, virus is not going to be able to infect. Permissivity, the ability of the cells to support infection. Accessibility of cells, physical accessibility, the presence of immune defenses. For example, in some animals, you can knock out the interferon type 1 receptor and get a different tropism because apparently interferon protects some of the tissues. So just to remind you about virus receptors, which we learned about a long time ago, here are some on the bottom here. They're all sorts. And they're, you know every receptor is not in every tissue, so that can be a determinant of tropism. But it's not the only determinant. As I said, permissivity, accessibility, defense. And I'm very frustrated in this outbreak that so many people feel that ACE2 is, is the whole story. Whether ACE2 is present will tell you whether the, the tissue is going to be infected. That's absolutely not true. But that's the problem when new people just jump in a field and think they can make a contribution without even taking a course in virology or reading a textbook. And they think ACE2 is all you need. Whole papers have been published on bioinformatic analysis of ACE2 predicting whether a certain tissue could be infected or not based on ACE2. There was one paper where they looked at different animals and they said, we could predict which animals are going to be infectable. And you know what was way down on the list according to their computational analysis? Mink, which are incredibly susceptible. Another determinant, which is quite widespread, is cleavage of spike glycoproteins. And I'm going to give you as an example, influenza virus hemagglutinin, which is shown here. Remember, this is a transmembrane glycoprotein. It forms the, the spike in the membrane of the virus. And this is just a line diagram to remind you that this has to be cleaved by proteases for fusion to occur. Because here's the fusion peptide in green. It's way down at the near the end, near the transmembrane part, and it's hidden so it doesn't just fuse with everything. And in fact, the end terminus of the fusion protein is not available until a protease cleaves it. And that protease can determine the tropism of influenza virus infection. So here on the lower left is a diagram of the respiratory epithelium. And influenza viruses are being produced. They're coming out of the apical domain of these cells. As they come out of the cells, if this were a human influenza virus, the HA would not be cleaved. So these viruses would not be infectious. 
but there, there are cells within the tract called club cells. They produce a protease called tryptase, and some work has shown that tryptase can cleave this HA. Now, this is a respiratory tract-specific protease. Explains the tropism to, uh, restricted to the respiratory tract. And these viruses, if you swallow them, which you do, you swallow mucus all the time, they could get into your intestine. They're not going to enter the cells because the HA is not cleaved. Tempress 2 is another protease that's been recently shown to be involved in cleaving the influenza virus HA. And that should ring a bell because that's the plasma membrane protease that's involved in cleavage of the SARS-CoV-2 spike. Important for fusion there as well. Now, I think we may have mentioned maybe at office hours, avian influenza viruses like H5N1. We'll talk about these a bit later in, in emergence. Now, these are viruses of chickens, turkeys, and geese, birds, right? Birds. They're bird avian influenza viruses. And they don't typically affect people, but people who work with birds, they can get infected and it can cause a serious disease. But the tropism is different. It's not just the lung. It's other tissues. So it can cause a really a, a pantropic systemic disease. And why is that? Well, because the cleavage site uh, just north of the fusion peptide in the HA of H5N1 viruses is cleaved by furin. Furins are ubiquitous proteases in the body. They're in many, many tissues. So, And they're in the cell and they actually cleave the virus on the way out. So that's why these viruses can reproduce in other tissues. It's a great example of how tropism can be controlled by proteases. And it's, it's likely that, and I think Tempris is also restricted, Tempris 2, and it probably is also playing a role in, in tropism of SARS-CoV-2. Insertion of multiple basic amino acids at the HA cleavage site allows influenza virus to infect many organs. So basic amino acids are the cleavage site for furans. This means that the blank of the virus has changed. Susceptibility, club cell tryptase, permissivity, tropism, or all of the above. So furans recognize multiple basic amino acids. Uh, and, and, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 spike has a furan cleavage site, which is really unusual. It's cleaved by furans. The results are tropism. Yeah, it's tropism. Most of you got that. So when you, uh, the insertion of multiple basic amino acids at the HA cleavage site, that's what the H5, the avian influenza viruses have, allows the virus to infect many organs. The tropism has changed, not susceptibility. Susceptibility means the presence or absence of a receptor. It hasn't changed. It's still sialic acid. Permissivity is internal permissivity of the, of the virus and not all of the above. The other aspect of pathogenesis that we study is virulence, the capacity of a virus to cause disease in a host. We talk about virulent versus avirulent or attenuated viruses. So attenuated, like an attenuated viral vaccine. It's an infectious virus. Uh, it's attenuated because its virulence is reduced. And we can measure virulence or quantitate it in different ways. Uh, sometimes just the virus titer is enough to, that a host makes. The mean time to death the mean time to appearance of signs, the measurement of fever and weight loss, measurement of pathological lesions for HIV, the reduction in blood CD4 positive lymphocytes. Uh, for SARS-CoV-2, how do we measure virulence? We could measure case fatality ratios, infection fatality ratios, which is implied, uh, the 
number of people who get hospitalized, all, all those sorts of things can be done both in animal models and in people. Again, these signs and symptoms that, that we can quantify when we measure virulence, many of them are caused by the immune response. Some of them are caused by virus multiplication. And we'll get back, we'll get back to this today, but some of them are caused by immune response. And I just remind you what signs and symptoms are. We talked about this a while ago. Important to distinguish. So here are two different assays for virus virulence. Here on the left, my favorite virus, poliovirus. The two of the three serotypes of poliovirus are shown here. Uh, and this is an experiment in mice. We've inoculated these viruses into mice, and we're looking at survivors. This is what you would call a Kaplan-Meier curve. You just, uh, when, when a mouse dies, you know, you, you tick down on the number of survivors. So here you could see this type 2 virus. Uh, by day 11, there are no survivors. And the type 1, they all survive. So in this case, we could say the... The type 2 is virulent in mice, and the type 1 is not. You can't do this in people, but both can be lethal in people. So that tells you right away that animals make a difference. So that's simply survivor. You could do weight loss. You could do temperature, all kinds of things you can measure. On the right is, uh, is uh, also a, an experiment in mice, but this time we're looking in the brain. We're taking the brain out after infection with these different viruses, and we're calculating a neurovirulence score, in which case you take the brain, you make slices, and you stain them, you put them on a microscope slide, you look at them, and you give it a score. You, you say, oh, there's a score of one cell damage or two or three. You know, they're very carefully calculated measurements of cell damage. And so that's what the score is. So high means the virus is neurovirulent. Neurovirulent, by the way, means the virus causes disease in the central nervous system. So there are different kinds of virulence as well, right? There are neurovirulence. Anyway, you can see, and, and we're looking at different cerebellum, brainstem, um, spinal cord uh, in the CNS. And some of these viruses are neurovirulent in all of them. And some of them here, dengue is, is not a neurovirulent virus. Uh, in humans, it certainly is not. And you stick it in the brain of mice, you get a little bit of damage, but it's not a neurovirulent virus. West Nile is, yellow fever is, et cetera. So two different measures of viral virulence. Very important for you to understand, this is a relative property. The virulence, however you're measuring it, is influenced by how much virus you put in, the route of infection, the species of animal you're using, the age of the species, its sex, and its susceptibility. So other things are controlling susceptibility. You can't compare the virulence of different viruses. You can't say polio is more virulent than neurovirus. You cannot do it. The newspapers will do it. Sure, they'll do it all the time. But none of them have taken my course. Maybe one day when you write, if any of you become journalists, you'll, you'll do the right thing and not compare virulence of different viruses. Basically, if you want to compare two different viruses, well, you can't. You have to use similar. You can compare polio 1 and 2, but you have to use the same animal and exactly the same assay. That's why looking at virulence of SARS-CoV-2 in people is flawed because people are genetically outbred. They're all different, and you can get different virulence in China versus New York. So that is virulence, uh, a relative property. And let's look at an example. Depends on the route of inoculation. This is a 
an RNA virus, lymphocytic choreomeningitis virus. It is not a human pathogen unless you're immunosuppressed and have a hamster. So these viruses can infect hamsters and you can have a pet hamster. And if you get an organ transplant, you know, you get immunosuppressed and you can die of this infection. There have been examples of people who died of fulminant LCMV infections after going home after getting their organ transplant. It's, it's a commonly studied uh, virus uh, to, to study the immune system in mice. And here we have, in one case, we give 100,000 PFU intraperitoneally. Right? We put a needle in the belly of the mouse. These mice are fine. They, every one of them survives. I put 100,000 PFU intraperitoneally last week of a human enterovirus into mice. They all lived because the virus doesn't infect mice. But in this case, if you put one PFU intracranially, that means right in the brain. It's very easy to do in mice. The, the skull is soft. You can put a needle right through it, especially when they're younger. One PFU is enough to kill the mice. So apparently the virus cannot get from the peritoneum into the CNS. But if you put the virus right in the CNF, only CNS, only one PFU is enough. So virulence depends on the route of inoculation. And there are many, many variables that control virulence. So you can't compare one virus by IC and one virus by IP inoculation. So in virology, many people study virulence. Why? We want to know what viral genes control it, what host genes control it, to get, a, to get an understanding of pathogenesis and maybe we can develop therapeutics or just understand it in the end. And how do we do this? In viruses and now in hosts, we can identify these genes by mutation. We make a mutation in the virus and we ask in an experimental animal, does the mutation reduce virulence? And if it does, we, we want to figure out the mechanism and understand how it works. So here's an example of that where we're using uh, both cells and culture and mice. So we have our wild type virus and we do a plaque assay. This, this virus grows nicely in cell culture, makes big plaques. You put it right in the brain of mice. Uh, this virus reproduces very well in the brain and it, it causes damage, just neurovirulent. Okay, that's our wild type virus. It's the virus we're studying. And now we wanna know what genes are important for, for neurovirulence. So we introduce mutations into the virus and we can do that very easily these days. And here we have a mutant virus, which it has a general defect in reproduction in cells and culture, it makes small plaques, it doesn't grow well. You put this in the brain of mice, it's attenuated, it doesn't cause disease. But this is boring, this is of no interest. It's just reproducing poorly. That's not very interesting. It's not specifically needed for, for virulence. But here, here is a mutant. It grows really well in cell culture, makes big plaques. You put it in the brain, no disease. That is a gene specifically needed to cause disease. It doesn't seem to do much in cells and culture, but in an animal, it's important for virulence, neurovirulence. Those are the genes we want to study, not just ones that make a wimpy virus. And over the years... As people have done these kinds of experiments, they have found four classes of viral virulence genes. First genes or gene products that affect viral replication, specifically in an animal, not in cell culture. Of course, you have genes that can reduce replication in cells and culture and in animals, and that's so interesting. They're just giving a defect in, in reproduction. Then we have genes encoding toxins, 
Not a lot of these. I'll give you an example of one next. Viruses in general do not have toxins, not like bacteria do. Then we have genes encoding modifiers of host defense mechanism. That's a big one, right? Every virus has to encode at least one antagonist of immune responses. Intrinsic, innate, adaptive. Otherwise, it's not going to be around long. And uh, if you take those out by mutation, boy, are you going to reduce the virulence of the virus. And then finally, genes and gene products that enable virus uh, to spread in the host. Uh, in, in a cell and culture, it wouldn't be so key, crucial to go from the respiratory tract to the brain, for example, because you don't have that in cells and culture. Now, mutations in these last two classes of genes often have no impact on reproduction in cells and culture, and, and some in this first may, may not have an impact either. And some people call them non-essential genes. That is a bad name because, of course, they're essential for something. It's just not you're, you're not looking in the right place. If you're looking in cells and culture and taking that gene out, gene X has no effect. Well, it's not needed in cells and culture, but viruses did not evolve to, to reproduce in cells and culture. They evolved in hosts. So you better look in a host. So don't call them non-essential genes. You know, you can delete most of the adenovirus genome. It doesn't mean it's not essential. In an animal, that, that virus wouldn't do anything. Now, some virulence determinants are actually not proteins. They can be non-coding regions of genomes. So here is a beautiful example. Uh, the Sabin vaccine strains of poliovirus have the three of them. Each of them has a mutation in the five prime non-coding region that reduces virulence, and that's why they're good vaccine strains. So here is the genome, and at the five prime end is a, is a highly structured sequence, the internal ribosome entry site or iris, and the poliovirus vaccine strains all have a single base change in this stem loop number six, shown here. That's expanded on the right, the type one. There are three serotypes of polio vaccines, right? Type one, two, and three. And each of them has a single base change here. This, this changes, these changes do nothing to the virus in cell culture. Excuse me, in cell culture. Nothing. But if you stick these in an animal, I'm going to show you that experiment in a moment. They have a big di difference. And this is work we have done in our lab many years ago using our transgenic mice. So here, polio replication in the mouse brain. We have two viruses, two poliovirus that differ only by one base, position 472. And I go back and show you that's right here in the five prime non-coding region. And in the vaccine strain of Sabin's vaccines, it's a U. In the wild type virus, it's a C. And if you inject virus with a C into mice, the 50% the lethal, lethal dose is about 9,000 PFU. If you inject the U-containing virus, the mice never get paralyzed. They're fine because a single base change in a non-coding region prevents paralysis and it prevents replication. So this is replication of the virus in the mouse brain, PFU per gram of brain over time after infection. The virus with a U is cleared. Virus with a C reproduces. One base in a non-coding region. It's amazing. Uh, someone asks if virulence genes are organism-specific. So in other words, um, would, would a mutation that reduces virulence of a virus in a, in a mouse, would it also do it in, um, 
and other hosts? Well, yeah, they can. Um, they don't have to be specific. They can be broad like this one. This mutation reduces virulence in mice, and it also reduces virulence in people. We know that because the vaccine strains have a, have a U. And when you uh, take these vaccines, they rapidly revert to C in the gut in about two days. And all babies that get Sabin vaccine excrete viruses with C. And about one in one and a half million of them can get polio as a consequence because they have some defect in their immune response. So yes, they can be similar, but they can be distinct as well. Here are some examples of viral gene products that modify host defenses. We've actually talked about some of these already. Immune modulators that interfere with apoptosis, autophagy, or intrinsic pro proteins like ApoBec3G. I talked about an HIV protein that directs ApoBec to be degraded. Uh, there are viral kinds and viral receptors. These are viral homologs of chemokines and chemokine receptors that interfere with chemokine activity. There are some pro viral proteins that combine complement and inhibit the complement pathway. Uh, there are modifiers of MHC1 and 2. We talked about these last time. And these are often not required for growth in cell culture. Why? Because none of this is in cell culture. Perhaps with the exception of apoptosis and autophagy, all the others aren't in cell culture. There's no, there's no effect of MHC1 or 2. There's no immune system. Here's another example, and this is of a chemokine. So a, a chemokine receptor homolog would be called a viroceptor. And so the, this is a herpes virus of mice, gamma herpes virus 68. It has a gene called the M3 gene encodes a chemokine receptor. And what this will do, this will be produced and it will bind chemokines from the host and it'll prevent them from working. So it interferes with the chemokine response. So when you infect mice with uh, this herpes virus, kills them, intracerebral inoculation, um, it, it's so it's neurovirulent. And um, here we're looking at percent survival with dose of virus. So the wild type virus is in blue. You can see increasing doses, more and more of the animals die. And you can calculate like a 50% survival, which would be, you know, right there looks like about 5 PFU. Now you take out the gene, the M3 gene, and look at this now 50% survival is now over 100 PFU. So you've reduced the virulence of that virus by taking out this chemokine receptor gene. And if you put it back in, that's the red virus, it, re it regains its virulence. Now you often do this when you delete a gene from a virus. You don't know if you're making other changes without knowing it. Maybe things happen in the cloning. So you always put the gene back and make sure you restore the phenotype. Here's an example of a toxic viral protein. This is a rotavirus protein. And rotaviruses cause gastroenteritis. And they do so mostly in very, very young children, you know, babies. And it can kill them because if you don't hydrate them, they'll die. And, uh, you know, in, the, in, in countries that use the vaccine, there's no more death from this. And even pre-vaccine, you know, certain countries can handle hydration of babies, but other countries can't. And many, many children died annually. And what happens is you get diarrhea and vomiting. And the diarrhea is caused by a viral protein called NSP4, which is uh, a toxin, a viral enterotoxin. This, this protein um, inhibits... 
a sodium glucose luminal co-transporter, which is basically important for fluid balance. And that causes the, the fluid to leak out of the cells and gives you diarrhea. It also stimulates intracellular calcium. That also increases removal of fluid from the cells. And if you feed this to an animal in the lab, it will give them diarrhea in the absence of virus reproduction. So that's an example of a toxic viral protein. Now, what you would say, why would this happen? Well, of course, diarrhea is a great way to spread virus infections. Uh, diarrhea and vomiting, actually. People with neurovirus gastroenteritis, they can vomit on airplanes and infect many people on the plane by aerosolizing the virus. Even if you vomit into the bag, you still make an aerosol. So that's one example of a, of a toxin, but there aren't very many uh, examples of viral toxins. Next question, which statement about viral virulence is wrong? A, it can be influenced by dose, root of infection, species, age, gender, and susceptibility of the host. B, it can be quantitated by measurement of fever. C, Ebola virus is more virulent than human papillomavirus. D, it is the capacity of a virus to cause disease in a host. E, when comparing virulence, the assays must be the same. Do we know that the change, what the change in the one base does to reduce virulence with poliovirus? No, I, just, I spent many years working on it and we don't know. And now that the virus is almost eradicated, nobody can work on it anymore. So I'm afraid we'll never know, at least for poliovirus. Let's see what the, what we found here. 97% got the right answer. What's wrong is Ebo saying that Ebola is more virulent than human papillomavirus. You can't compare different viruses because they have totally different assays. And, uh, you know, you may say, wow, Ebola kills a lot of people. Right, but you can't compare them scientifically. That's the point. Now, we've talked about uh, viral determinants of virulence, right? The four classes of genes that can regulate virulence of viruses. Cell, the cell can also have determinants of vi viral virulence, right? And this is what makes some hosts more susceptible to severe disease than others. So here is a beautifully studied example. This is a disease called herpes simplex encephalitis. Now, most of us get infected with herpes virus in the first few years of our life from our parents. As they kiss us, they give us the virus and uh, it then infects our mucosal epithelial cells and goes into our peripheral nerve ganglia. We'll, we'll talk about this in a couple of lectures and, and becomes latent there. And that's how you have it for your whole life. Periodically, it's reactivated. You get a, a cold sore. But sometimes things go wrong. And one of the things that can go wrong is on this reactivation. The virus can actually go into the brain and cause an inflammation of the brain, which is called encephalitis. This is pretty rare, you know, everybody has herpes and everyone gets reactivated, although not everyone gets cold sores, but one in 200, 250,000 people a year get herpes encephalitis. And it has, if you don't treat it, and you can treat it with antivirals, it's 70% mortality. There are two peaks of incidence around six months to three years of age. And that's when you first get infected with herpes viruses. So that's the primary infection. So there's a peak of encephalitis then, so you can get brain invasion with that first infection. Or... Uh, after 50 years of age, for some reason, you know, you, you get reactivated throughout your life, but for some reason, after 50, there's a peak in, herf in herpes uh, encephalitis. So people have asked, well, what's going on? Because one in 250,000, what about the 249,000 people that 
have herpes, but they don't get encephalitis. So what they do now is you can do genome sequencing, right? What we call GWAS, genome-wide association studies. There's a fancy name for saying we'll sequence someone's exome, the coding regions only, and we look for single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are called SNPs, that associate with some severe disease, in this case, encephalitis, right? Now, SNP is a fancy name for mutation. We don't say that they're mutations because who's to say what's wild type in people, right? <laughs> you know, you uh, have some different base at a certain locus and someone else has a different one and maybe they're all fine. So we call them SNPs, polymorphisms. SNPs, of course, I call them mutations, but SNPs in TLR3, UNC93B, TRIF or TRAF, are the ones that predispose people to herpes simplex virus encephalitis. Because in this case, they are mutations. They, they really mess up the proteins. So here is uh, how herpes virus gets into cells. It gets into cells um, by endocytosis. And infection is sensed by toll-like receptors. And these uh, genes are all part of the toll-like receptor pathway. So TLR3 is the actual toll-like receptor in the endosome that will sense nucleic acid. Uh, UNC 93 is a ER protein that's important for getting TLR3 to the endosome. And then um, TRIF is, a, is, the, is one of the proteins present in the signal transduction pathway from TLR3 to the nucleus. So basically, these people have a defect in sensing and responding to uh, herpes infection um, by the innate immune system. So when they have reactivation, their cells make a lot more virus. And it, that gives you a better chance of it getting into the CNS. So that's a beautiful example of how you can identify why people get, certain people get severe disease. Of course, we have now done this for COVID-19. A number of uh, studies have done it. In fact, this study that I'm showing you about herpes was done, and these are often big collaborative studies. This was done, this was uh, headed by a group uh, at, at the Rockefeller University of uh, the group of Jean-Laurent Casanova, and he's also participated in COVID-19 GWAS studies. So again, you're looking for, you, you sequence patients' exomes, and you stratify them according to what kind of disease they have, and you say, do certain changes go with severe COVID? This is not easy to do, because the genome is 3 billion bases, well, and the exome is smaller, but and it's only one one and a half percent of that, but still, it's a it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of noise. Anyway, this is one study that was just published. It's by um, this group, Genomic Genetics of Mortality and Critical Care. They had 2,200 critically ill patients from 208 UK intensive care units. Right, so you can you don't need a lot of material. You just need some blood. You can get the lymphocytes out and sequence them, their genomes. And this is a plot where we're we're looking at the probability of a certain mutation or, or SNP being associated with severe disease across all the, the, the chromosomes, all 22 somatic chromosomes here. And you can see certain genes pop up above the noise, right? Every part of the chromosome has noise. There, there are SNPs. We're all different. You know, in fact, every cell in our body is different from every other one. Some of these are um, here. IFNAR2 is a type 2 interferon receptor. So people with a SNP there are at risk for more serious disease. Here's a kinase involved in interferon. Here's a sensor of the innate immune system, OAS. And as a control, they, they, put, they show you where the ABO blood group is here. I don't know if you remember, but 
early pe- early on people thought that AB blood group types uh, tracked with severe disease. They don't. They don't even rise above the the background here. You can see that was a mistake. Chemokine receptor gene, etc. So you can now take these and do some functional studies and ask, you know, does this make a difference, say, in cells and culture? That's what they did for the herpes virus gene as well. So it's pretty cool stuff. And uh, you you can eventually imagine that we're going to have a whole catalog of susceptibility genes. We're going to sequence your genome at birth. And it's a good idea. It's going to be stored somewhere. And uh, your, your physician can look at it and say, oh, you're at risk for this. We have to do this for you and that. And this is going to be part of medical care in some, some point in the future. Another famous one, another famous host gene that actually affects susceptibility is CCR5, which encodes the CCR, the chemokine receptor number five, that is a co-receptor for HIV-1. Now remember, HIV-1 glycoprotein, just shown in green and and yellow, uh, binds two proteins on the cell surface, CD4 and CCR. It could be uh, CCR5 and CXCR4, a different one. But about 4 to 16% of people of European descent have a deletion of the CCR5 gene, 32 base deletion called Delta 32. They don't make the protein. Apparently they're fine. It must be redundant. And they're, they're protected against uh, HIV-1 infection. And so that's a great example of a host gene that determines susceptibility in the sense that susceptibility is the ability of a cell to, to bind, a receptor to be present to bind virus, right? We don't know why these people have this deletion at all. We, we don't know what the selective force was. Been, it's been around for many years, longer than HIV has been around, all right? So there was some other selection that led to it, but we don't know what it is. Now, a number of years ago, there's a very famous case of an AIDS patient in Germany who, in, in addition to having AIDS, had leukemia, and his physician decided to give him a bone marrow transplant in which you irradiate right the person, and that kills all the bone marrow. So now you could give him a transplant with someone else's bone marrow, who, who of course, doesn't have AIDS, and now you will repopulate that patient's uh, immune system and the physician was very smart. He decided to get a donor who had the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. And uh, this patient was given a transplant. The first one didn't work. He had a second one, and it worked. And the guy was AIDS-free. He actually just died, I think, last year or the year before, but not of AIDS. So this cured him. However, you know, a stem cell, a bone marrow transplant is very expensive, and it has about 20 to 30% mortality associated with it. So it's not a cure for AIDS, right? It's a, it's a proof of concept. And subsequently, recently, there was another patient in London who got a similar therapy. So these were both published. And the, the, you know, the German patient was very vocal and talked about it and, and so forth. Now, we now know that you can block CCR5. There's, there are antiviral drugs that block CCR5 and, and they prevent infection. We'll talk about those later. So those are specific examples. There are other determinants of virulence that are less well understood. One of them is age. So very young and very old humans tend to be more susceptible to disease. So I'm using susceptible in a, in a not a receptor way, but just talking about developing disease. Why is that? Well, we think the young people, their immune system is immature, hasn't developed properly, and it can't deal with uh, disease. So here's 
an example of influenza. It's a classic. This is the death rate in different age groups, right? From this is from 1911 to 1915. You can see high death rate in the very young and the very old. It's not always the case, right? Of course, COVID-19 is not like this. Very old people die, but not young. And we think uh, older people, why do they, uh, why are they more susceptible? Lots of reasons. The alveoli are less elastic. Their respiratory muscles are weaker. They can't cough as well, right? Diminished cough reflex. You can't expel things. They have a reduced rate of production of immune cells. In fact, as you age, your bone marrow diminishes. You have less and less bone marrow. I, always, I like to say I'm becoming a shell of my former self. I have very little bone marrow, right, as I age. Um, so you can't make immune cells. And um, so that's part of the reason why uh, we're not supposed to live beyond reproductive age, right? <laughs> we're not supposed to live past our 30s because that's what we lived to before medicine. And medicine prolongs our age. And as a consequence, we have cancers and Alzheimer's and susceptibility to infectious diseases. So everything's a, a trade-off in life, right? You want to live longer? This is what you have to deal with. So people will figure this out eventually. I don't know. Do you need to live to 150 years? I'm not sure. Here is a breakdown of COVID-19 case fatality ratio by age. This is a very interesting uh, graph from Our World and Data. This is a great site. They have so much cool stuff here. Zero to nine years of age. This is just in a couple of countries, but it's, it's representative. Very little death. Starts to go up with age. And then you can see the very old, over 60-ish, start to get very high death rates, highest in 80 plus years. And again, that's probably a combination of immunosenescence, weak muscles, and so forth. That's why if you're over 65, you can get vaccinated. Another determinant is sex. In general, men or males, males specifically, are slightly more susceptible to infections than females, but not always. It is the case for COVID-19, about two-fold effect, two-fold more, two more lethal in men, but not every disease is the same. In general, and some many people have studied this. Uh, Brock Klein at Hopkins has made a career of studying this with influenza. Um, in general, it looks like there's elevated humoral immunity in females compared with males. And, and that is phylogenetically conserved. If you look in other organisms, it's the same, not just in people. So maybe that's like that to ensure reproductive success, right? Protect the, the females. Antibody responses in, in women correspond with elevated estradiol hormones, and here's a nice study of neutralizing antibody seroconversion rate after influenza immunization. So this is a very nice uh, way to study this because people get immunized with flu every year and you can just take blood from men and women and say who, who responds. So here we have conversion rate. You can see adult males is lower uh, than adult females. Although when we get to age, aged, like over 65, 70, then... Uh, it's no good. The females don't have an advantage anymore. I would say that's because they're no longer um, reproductive, reproductively active, and biologically it doesn't have to be conserved. But this is the difference here uh, at at younger age. Pregnancy is another one that makes certain viral diseases more lethal: hepatitis A, B, E, influenza, and COVID nineteen. They're all more lethal in pregnant females. But again, not every disease follows these patterns. And finally, some other determinants, malnutrition increases susceptibility 
because it, it compromises physical and immune barriers and immune responses. And this is why measles is 300 times more lethal in developing countries than in Europe and North America because specifically of malnutrition in those countries. And that's a real shame. Cigarette smoking also increases susceptibility to respiratory infections and people are studying the mechanisms and they're multiple and they have to do with physical damage by TARS, but also by impairment of innate immune responses. Air pollution also increases respiratory disease. Cities with greater pollution have greater rates of respiratory disease. And stress also causes increased susceptibility to infection. So try not to stress. I don't know how you just don't do it, but it, <laughs> you'll be healthier, I think. Um, which statement about determinants of viral virulence is wrong? Incorrect. A, virulence genes can encode viral proteins. Uh, B, virulence genes can encode cellular proteins. C, they're the same in all viruses. D, they can be found in untranslated regions. E, they may encode immune modulators. All right, let's see what we have here. That's right. Most of you got the right answer, which is what's wrong. They're all the same in all viruses. Virulence determinants are not the same in all viruses. Everything else is correct. Now let's talk about how viruses cause disease. Some viruses injure cells, right? Cytotoxic, cytopathic effects. We talked about these way back in the beginning, CPE. So there are viruses we call cytolytic viruses. They damage cells. We showed a picture of cells being infected with poliovirus, rounding up, detaching, syncytium formation, fusing of cells. That's a kind of cytotoxic effect. It's, in, it's injuring the cell. It's fusing them. That's not good for the cell. And apoptosis, necrosis, pyroptosis, those are all specific mechanisms of CPE. Some viruses encode proteins that punch holes in cell membranes and that everything leaks out, the cell dies. Many viruses inhibit host protein synthesis. They inhibit RNA synthesis. This causes loss of integrity of cell membranes. Enzymes leaks out, leak out, the cytoplasm degrades. So basically there are a class of viruses that damage cells and when they do that in your body, that accounts for virulence. So if a virus gets into your brain and de destroys neurons, like poliovirus, you're going to get paralyzed. <laughs> However, many viruses do not kill cells. And that's where immunopathology comes in. What I like to call too much of a good thing. You know, the immune response is supposed to be good, right? But too much is not good. And we are seeing that in severe COVID. And for many viruses, the clinical symptoms, fever, tissue damage, aches, pains, nausea, well, those are mostly, for all viruses, a consequence of the host response, right? Flu-like symptoms, interferons, you know, they're systemic. If you have a respiratory infection, you get nausea, it's because of a systemic cytokine. And so all these, you know, generic symptoms are immune response mediated. Even further, for viruses that don't kill cells, what we call non-cytopathic viruses, the disease is actually a consequence of the immune response. And I want to spend some time telling you about this. This is called immunopathology. Sometimes over-exuberant immune responses can be adaptive, as shown here. And I say also over-exuberant innate immune responses can cause problems. Um, but even not over-exuberant as you will see, it could be just the normal immune response. So we have uh, both T and B cell mediated kinds of immunopathology. And we and these are all the different viruses 
that are involved in um, in in both. Here we have CD8 positive T cells that are involved in uh, immunopathology, CD4 positive, even broken down into Th1 and and Th2 kinds of CD4 helper cells, and there's even B cell mediated. So dengue virus in humans and feline infectious peritonitis virus. It's a coronavirus of cats. Antibody-mediated immunopathology. So here's an example of viral disease mediated by CD8-positive T cells. Those are cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Those job, the job of those cells is to lyse virus-infected cells. But you can imagine that lysing cells in itself, it might help you know, resolve the infection, but it's going to cause some damage, right? So here we have LCMV, lymphocytic choriomeningitis virus, which I told you was a model immune virus in mice. You put it right in the brain of, of adult mice. Um, in eight days, they're dead. Choriomeningitis, an inflammation of the, the brain. If you uh, inject immune-suppressed mice, give them steroids, say, broad immune suppression. These, these animals are fine. They develop a persistent infection and they can live their whole life. They're fine. But if you give them CD8 positive CTLs from, say, another mouse, they die within five days. So the CD8 CTLs are killing them. And it's an example of um, immunopathology, right? Otherwise, if they're immunosuppressed, now you may say, what? Why doesn't this happen? Well, you're putting the virus in the brain. So remember, normally you put this virus IP, they're fine. But when it gets in the brain, then that's the problem. So mice, you know, in the wild, well, these are lab mice anyway, so they're highly inbred. But in the wild, that mice don't get virus put directly into their brain. This is a model for understanding pathogenesis. Here are just some additional experiments to show you what CD8 CTLs can do. So this is... Um, percent mice alive after infection. And we're looking at two different mice, wild-type mice. Perforin is one of those proteins made by CTLs that helps to kill the virus-infected cell. You'll have to go back to last lecture to remember that. We can make mice lacking the perforin gene. And I'm sorry, the, the minus signs have dropped here. <laughs> you can make perforin null mice. And those mice, um, they all live after infection. In, in the experiment I showed you previously. So the wild-type mice all die after intracerebral inoculation. If you just get rid of perforin, now the, the, the CTLs are not able to damage cells, so the mice live. And this is a, a liver enzyme in the same animals uh, showing you, so you know the liver enzyme should not be in the blood, should not be in the serum, unless there's liver damage. And the the wild-type mice, you know, they have the enzyme in the blood, which means they have liver, liver damage also, but the perforin knockouts don't have any enzyme in the blood. Uh, and on the bottom is a different model. This is a model of heart uh, damage caused by an enterovirus, Coxsackie virus, in mice. And you can infect mice uh, with Coxsackie virus, and they get uh, damage to their cardiomyocytes. And this is stained with a dye. It stains light blue, showing you that there's damage there. And on the right are perforin knockout mice. They don't have any heart damage. So the, the heart damage is caused by CTLs. And this is relevant to people because many people get Coxsackie virus infections at a young age, and then their heart is damaged. And then as they age, they need heart transplants, specifically because of these infections. And so the damage is caused by cytotoxic T lymphocytes. CD4s 
can also cause immunopathology. Uh, CD4s make a lot of cytokines, right? They make, they can convert, they can help B cells, they can help CTLs mature, they can do other things as well. Uh, they can recruit effector cells like neutrophils and mononuclear cells, and those in turn can cause damage. So if a CD4 is in a tissue secreting these things, it's going to draw in cells that can cause damage. Uh, and proteases, re reactive radicals like peroxides and cytokines can cause tissue damage. These would all be released by these mononuclear cells that are recruited by CD4 um, cytokines. So a very well-known example of uh, immunopathology caused by CD4 positive T cells is herpes stromal keratitis, one of the most common causes of blindness in developed countries, almost entirely immunopathological caused by CD4 positive Th1 cells. And so what happens, you get repeated herpes virus infections of the eye, and eventually uh, the, the, uh, the eye becomes opaque and, and you can't see anymore, as you can see in this picture. So how does this happen? So here are, are cross-sections of the uh, cornea. Here's the corneal epithelium, the thin layer of cells on the top, right? And underneath are the stromal cells of the cornea. And, and the epithelium is where the virus reproduces. So you should not put your fingers in your eye, right? Because if you've got herpes on them, which you could have from a, your own, uh, you know, your own shedding of virus or someone else, you put it in your eye, it can replicate in these epithelial cells. But the damage is done below because this replication recruits CD4-positive Th1 cells, and they're all in the, the stroma below. Those are these darkly staining dots there. They secrete cytokines. Neutrophils come in, and they damage the stroma. There's no virus in the stroma at all. The, the CD4s are come, they're recruited by the virus infection of the epithelium, but their presence damages the stroma. So the idea here is that this, this is an immune response that elsewhere would not be damaging. But because it's in the, the cornea, it's a real problem. Another uh, good example is West Nile virus encephalitis. In uh, a good fraction of people, uh, the virus gets into the brain and can cause long-term issues, cognitive and motor issues. And at least in mice, there is a cytokine that compromises the blood-brain barrier. And we know this because mice lacking toll-like receptor 3 are more resistant to lethal encephalitis because they, they have impaired cytokine production. And the cytokine that's involved is tumor necrosis factor alpha, which compromises the blood-brain barrier and lets the virus get in. So, you know, the, the TLR3 senses infection. As a consequence, TNF-alpha is produced, and that loosens up the blood-brain barrier, and then the virus gets in. So it's a double-edged sword, but that's what immunopathology is. So this is an experiment in mice where we've infected wild-type or TLR3 knockout mice, and at the same time, we give them a dye. We inject a dye which... Uh, um, normally should not get into the brain, but is a measure of brain permeability. So you can see uh, wild-type virus, by day three, the, the brain is full of the blue dye because it's become permeabilized. Uh, and if you infect TLR3 knockout mice, uh, day three, there's no dye in the brain because the blood-brain barrier has not been compromised because these mice are not producing as much TNF-alpha. Poxes and rashes are, are immunopathologies. Um, and this, of course, are made by many virus infections, as we've talked about before. Measles, this, this child has measles, smallpox, 
varicella zoster. In many cases, Th1 cells and macrophages are homing in on the infected foci in the skin. The virus is reproducing. These immune cells come in, they make cytokines, and those cytokines increase the capillaries and they pull T cells in, which causes the swelling and so forth. And finally, uh, dengue is a disease of antibodies, B cells. Dengue uh, also is a, is a Cambodian rock group called dengue fever, um, uh, which I, I've heard actually. I was on a visit to a radio station and they had this in the studio. And so they were interviewing me and I said, you have to play this because I'd never heard of that before. Cambodian rock. Dengue is a flavivirus spread by mosquitoes, Aedes aegypti mainly, and it is endemic in areas where the mosquito is common, which means not the U.S., Caribbean, Central and South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, billion, it's like three to four billion people are at risk for infection, and we get about 400 million infections a year, and second only to malaria among insect-borne diseases. So here's the range of dengue uh, shown here in the red and the yellow. And um, that's pretty much where the, the mosquito is. We had almost eradicated dengue before 1981. Here, here's South America, Central and South America. And then after 1981, it came back. That's the red. Why? Because we used to use DDT. We almost got rid of all the mosquitoes using DDT, but then we realized DDT was bad. We stopped using it and the mosquitoes came back and they brought dengue with it. And how did they come back? Well, tires. I mentioned this before, but the used tire trade is responsible for spreading mosquitoes all around the world. They pile these up on ships, open ships. They're full of water. Mosquitoes breed in them. And I told you, 80s Albopictus, the Asian tiger mosquito, was introduced into the U.S. in Houston by a container ship bringing in tires with the mosquito in it. Yeah, that's what we do. Dengue fever, which is caused by infection, uh, the primary infection, the first time you get it, can be either asymptomatic or a febrile illness, severe headache, back and limb pain, rash, aches and pains in the bones. I actually interviewed a, a virologist uh, a number of years ago who had dengue. She was working in the field in Africa and got it. And even years after she the, the infection resolved, she still would have bouts of, of bone pain. So even though you recover, you can have long-term effects. In these primary infections, there's a low risk of getting a hemorrhagic fever and, and a severe disease uh, where your capillaries are leaking and you get shock and you can die. Okay, so there are four serotypes and there's no cross-protection. So when you're infected with one you could be infected with the others again because the antibodies don't protect you. The problem is when you get a second infection with, say, you've had first dengue one, then you get either dengue two, three, or four. So you get your primary infection, right? You make your antibodies, you have memory, and then you get a secondary infection with a different serotype. The memory kicks in, you get antibodies. These antibodies can actually bind the virus if it's type two or three and the antibodies are against type one, but they don't neutralize it. And these antibodies will bind to FC receptors on like monocytes and macrophages and allow the virus to infect them where it normally doesn't. And this gives you more virus and it releases a lot of cytokines and chemokines from these cells. So this gives you a secondary infection, which is much more severe. It's immunopathological. And the incidence of fever and shock, which is called severe dengue, 
goes from one in 14,000 to one in 90 or one in 50. So this is antibody mediated. And what's the solution? Well, we have to vaccinate people so that they don't, so they're automatically immune to all four. And that's being done. SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV and CoV-2 infections are immunopathological, right? You have uh, acute respiratory distress, acute lung injury. Those are lower respiratory tract diseases caused by immunopathological reactions. We used to call them cytokine storm, overproduction of cytokines. People don't like that term anymore. You know, in the COVID era now, people have said it's not a cytokine storm. It's other things. It's dysregulated. Okay, you get the idea. But it was first discovered in SARS-1. And, you know, here are two scenarios where you have an inflammatory response. You have a protective response, regulated. You know, you have an early interferon response, reduced virus reproduction. You have good infiltration of monocytes and macrophages, minimal disease, minimal immunopathology, protective immunity, and host survival. But then you have the pathogenic or dysregulated, where you have a delayed interferon response, and that seems to be also the case with SARS-CoV-2, high virus reproduction, an over-response of the immune response, more apoptosis, vascular leakage, and uh, acute lung injury, acute respiratory distress, and death. And this happens with COVID-19 as well. The exact uh, you know, cytokines and chemokines that are at play are not known. You know, we have tried to treat patients with, you know, anti-IL-6. IL-6 is one of the major pro-inflammatory cytokines, but that on its own uh, is not really sufficient. So I, I thought I would show you the stages of COVID-19 to illustrate this. You know, most of the infections, 80% or more, are simply involving this early, this viral period where you get exposed you have then virus reproduction. So the purple line is uh, viral RNA detected by PCR. So there's an incubation period of 2 to 14 days. You have onset of symptoms, TS. And then really within seven days, your, your viral titers are down. This is the infectious level, the green line. And most of the infections are over. Your antibodies start to rise. But, you know, 20% of the patients proceed into this inflammatory period where there's an overreaction of the immune response, and it's been divided into early, secondary, and multi-system inflammatory phases. There's very little virus here. This is all driven by immune responses. And that's why treating patients with antivirals and, and monoclonals in this period is useless. You have to give them early, but how do you know who's going to get really sick? That's been the problem. Some viruses, and I know I'm, I'm going over, but um, if you have to leave, it's fine. Some viruses cause immunosuppression, a global reduction of the immune response, which is a consequence of virus infection. And this happens when the virus uh, reproduces in one or more cells of the immune system. They perturb cytokine and uh, homeostasis and intracellular signaling. The virus proteins can even interfere directly with the cytokine system. And this happens during measles infection. This is a really big one. Of course, HIV-1 is also a major immunosuppressor. And here's an, an experiment in children who have uh, measles. And we're looking at the tuberculin test. So when you have a TB test, if you'd like to know if you've ever had TB, they inject a TB antigen uh, intradermally. It's called the TB test. And then you, uh, if you get a swelling or an induration, as you can see here, that's from T cells coming in. 
that means you've been previously infected and they can measure it here. And what they did is see the effect of measles on this reaction. And so, you know, here's the induration before measles infection. When you have a rash from measles, the same kids who are TB positive before, no TB reaction. And it finally comes back uh, weeks after the rash, but that is immunosuppression by measles virus infection. Or at least this is what the, we think is the mechanism. Um, infection of a small uh, proportion of monocytes appears to block the, um, the synthesis of IL-12. Now, normally IL-12 would be made in response to infection and it skews the response to a Th1 profile. Okay, you have Th1 CD4 cells produced. And this, of course, favors the production of CTLs, killing virus-infected cells. But what happens in a measles virus-infected cell, IL-12 production is inhibited. Consequently, you get Th2 response, not Th1. And Th2 is not good for clearing the infection, right? You need CTLs to clear an infection. So we think this is why uh, measles immunosuppresses. Uh, just in the past year or two, an amazing paper was published in Science showing that measles erases your immune memory. What they did here, and, and because the virus infects not just those antigen-presenting cells I just showed you, but actually memory B cells and destroys them. So what they did here is they made peptides representing the full proteomes of around 400 pathogenic human viruses. So they made peptides covering all the proteins of all these viruses. They put them on chips and then they flow over them serum from kids. And they ask, who, what kids have antibodies to virus? And, and 400 human pathogenic viruses. And these are dot cloud plots where, where there are many, many dots in here representing all the peptides. They can quantify the reactivity. And these are all the controls. These are controls. These are measles negative kids. These are kids who've been vaccinated. And these are kids with either mild or severe measles. Look at this. This is the early time point in the late, before and after measles, basically. Look at how you, it's depressed the amount of antibody reactivity to the proteome. It's erasing immune memory. And this is a different way of looking at the data. This is the proportion of total epitopes detected uh, in the two times. And again, you know, the controls, the measles negative kids, and then a huge depression. Each of these dots is one child. Uh, depressing the number of epitopes that are detected. So it erases your immune memory. It will come back, actually, but you have to be reinfected or vaccinated. So these kids, if, if they've been vaccinated and they get measles, it's all out the window. You have to be revaccinated. This is why we need to vaccinate against measles and prevent infection, because it really, really can mess you up. Other viruses immunosuppress. Here's measles, right? Here are the cells that are infected. Uh, reduced T cells. We reduce the B memory cells now, we've learned. Rubella also infects lymphoid cells and immunosuppresses. And of course, HIV infects CD4 positive T cells and wipes out that population. And so we have no immune response. And we'll talk about that later. So that is pathogenesis, mostly immunopathology. And so I've been very surprised in the past year as people have realized that severe COVID is immunopathological. This is nothing new. We've known about viral immunopathology for years. Next time, we're going to start looking at 
the different kinds of virus infections. We're going to start with acute infections where the virus comes and goes in a very short period and infections resolved. 